Good morning. Welcome out to Vail Church. My name is Ted Max. I get to serve on staff here as the lead pastor. We are glad you are spending a little part of your weekend here with us. If you're in the room, if you could help me welcome those joining us online, we're glad you're with us today. Thanks for being here. All of you in Texas, Iowa, Missouri, Kansas, Arkansas, Indiana, Kentucky, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia, the list goes on and on. Of course, the state of Illinois, we are glad you are here as we are in a series entitled The Hangover. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and cover that because if you're brand new, you're like, wow, nice choice of title for a series. Um, let me explain that to you real quick. Uh, we actually are kind of doing it from the side of that when Jesus was crucified, uh, when he was uh, you know, accused and he went through this mock trial, this sham trial, and he was put on a cross and was killed, it was coming on the heels of a celebration, a party called Passover. And so it was this big deal. People would gather, they would drink, they would celebrate God, his power, his influence in their lives. But it was at the end of this party that things fell apart when Jesus went to the cross. The disciples were scattered. They were terrified. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know where to go. And so we've kind of looked at it as like after the party was over, there was this big letdown. There was this hangover. And we're going through and taking a look at some of the scenarios and the encounters that Jesus had with some of his disciples after the crucifixion and resurrection. And so that's the premise of the series. And today we're gonna to take a look at one of my favorite characters in all of the Bible. Um, just one of the people I absolutely love. I think it's probably because I relate with them a little bit. Um, and that would be the person of Peter. Now, if you know anything about Peter, Peter was the guy that was kind of a loud mouth, got himself uh, in trouble a lot. He would put his foot in his mouth a lot, say dumb things. He got rebuked by Jesus a couple times. Um, and I, maybe that's why I relate with him. Like he was just kind of like the guy that was like not always making the best choices. I'm like, you know what? I get that, Peter. I can walk in that space with you. But Peter was kind of the guy that was known as the uneducated fisherman. And yet you go through the Bible and realize he's really, really sharp, just a sharp guy. In fact, he goes on to do some unbelievable things for the kingdom of God. He becomes the first pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, he wrote uh, 1 Peter, um, 2 Peter, like these, these great books to a lot of people that were facing trials and tribulation. In fact, um, I don't know how many of you are here online um, that are in a trial right now, but today we're going to talk through that a little bit of what does it look like to walk through a season of trial. And I can tell you this, if you're not in a trial right now, um, you're in one of three positions. You either are about to go into one, you're coming out of one, or you're in the midst of it right now. It's just the way it is, because life is filled with trials. It's filled with these opportunities. Believe it or not, that's what the Bible would call them, these opportunities to grow in your faith. And so when Peter was writing 1 Peter, it was sometime between 60 and 65 AD. This was a very interesting time, because this is the time that Nero was in charge. If you know anything about Nero, Nero did some really dark stuff. In fact, 64 AD, Nero lit Rome on fire and burned for six days, and he blamed the Christians. He was like, it was the Christians that did this. They're the ones that to blame. He was the guy that would take Christians and put them in gladiator fights and have them be killed. He was the guy that fed them to lions. He was the one that would have garden parties and hang Christians up on stakes, and he would light them on fire and turn them into human torches for his parties. Like some dark stuff. And I would love to say that stuff doesn't happen anymore, but the reality is around the world, there's a lot of dark stuff like that happening still to Christians and persecuting the church. And so Nero was in the midst of this, and so, so Peter's writing this book to a bunch of Christians that are scared, um, and he, he, he became this just powerful voice to the people. But the question is, how did he become that guy? How did he become the guy that had so much faith that he was writing to Christians and telling them how to navigate this series of pain and hurt and yet stay strong in their faith. And the only way to understand it is to go back and look at his story. And so I want to take you to a time that Peter was not that guy. I want to take you back to when Peter was still trying to figure out who it is that he was. And so in order to do that, I want to take you to a moment where Jesus is with Peter. And he actually says to Peter, Peter, you're going to make a mistake. You're going to mess up here real soon. But he's going to say that I've prayed for you. 
And I want to show you where this picks up in Luke chapter 22. Here's what it says. It says, Simon, Simon. Now, before I go any further, I've got to, you know, just talk about this right here. Say Simon. Simon. Say it, Simon. Simon. There we go. All right, so Simon is Peter. And you might be like, well, if it's Peter, why didn't you just say Peter? Um, And here's why. Simon's name is Simon. That's what he was called. That was his name from birth. It was his given name. However, Jesus at this point has already given him a new name. If you know it, it's Peter. In fact, there was a time that Jesus looked at Peter or Simon and said, I'm going to call you Peter from now on. And he says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He says, I'm giving you a new name, a new identity. I'm giving you a new position and I'm giving you power. Yet every single time that Peter would find himself in a position where he needed to be rebuked or he needed to be corrected, Jesus did not call him Peter. Jesus would call him Simon. It's almost as if Jesus was saying, hey, I'm calling you Simon because you're acting like the old you. I need you to act like the new you, but you're not acting like the new you, so you're gonna get Simon today. It was almost like this moment of like, like I don't know how many of you got this experience, but like when I would get in trouble as a kid, you know, I was just Ted around the house until I was in trouble. Then I was Ted Ryan, and then it was, it was on, right? That's when I knew I was, it was going down. Well, here's what Jesus is doing. He says, Simon, because you're acting like Simon. So here's what it says. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith, say faith, Faith. real important. He says that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, this is super interesting to me. He says, listen, you're actually gonna turn away. He says, you're gonna turn away, but when you come back, when you turn again, I'm gonna ask that you strengthen your brothers. And so Peter hears this. And then Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I will go where you go, Lord. Nothing will separate us. If you, man, if they kill you, they're gonna have to kill me. If they put you in prison, they're gonna have to put me in prison. I am with you 100%. That's what he believed. He's like, I got the faith to stand with you, Jesus. Yeah, here's what happens. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Jesus foretells the fact that, hey, Peter, there's gonna come a moment where you're gonna be tested. And the reality is, is that you will fail that test. And in life, you are going to face trials. And you're going to have to decide what you do with those trials. You're going to decide how you respond to those trials. And there's actually a purpose in the trials. Can I just give you this? I believe that, that in life, there's actually purpose in our pain. And there's a purpose in our trials. We just have to decide, will we see it and will we grow from it? Will we become who God wants us to become as we face those trials? In fact, Peter himself wrote this in 1 Peter. I want to read this for you because this is his point of view after going through the trials. Here's what he said. He said, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says that you're gonna have some moments in life where you're gonna be able to walk through fire, you're gonna be tested, And it's going to determine, ultimately, your faith. And so here's what I want to give you that I think is just a a great thing for us to believe, a great thing for us to understand, and a great thing for us to walk in this truth is that trials actually have the power to reveal your faith. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you've walked into a trial and you found real quick that you didn't have as much faith as you thought you did. I have. I've been in a season where something happens in my life, and I all of a sudden realized that I was not as faith-filled as I thought I was because when the trial came, I buckled. I folded. I didn't walk the way I was supposed to walk. I didn't talk the way I was supposed to talk. And I didn't do the things that I thought were inside of me. Why? Because the trial was more powerful than me. The trial was greater than I could stand. The trial was greater than I could walk through on my own. And I didn't dig in and press into God. I tried to navigate it myself. 
And you see, there's all different sorts of trials, aren't there? There's trials that you have no control of that happen to you, but then there's also trials that you create for yourself. <laughs> like I go back over my life and there's some times that things fall apart and I'm like, God, why would you let this happen? And I think that God sometimes just wants to say back to me like, uh, you put yourself here. Like you did that. You, you, no wrong, I'm with you, but you're the idiot that got yourself here. So let's just, let's own that and be honest for just a moment. Like there's trials that you can create and there's trials that God will give you. And he says, but even, even if you created it, you're gonna have to decide how you get through it. In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, I don't even know anything about James, um, but I've always loved this, this book he wrote. If you've never read the book of James, it's one of the most practical books in all of the Bible. But James was the brother of Jesus. Now, I don't want you to imagine how hard that's gotta be, right? If you go back in the Bible, you actually find that James was not a believer in Jesus at first. In fact, there was a time in Jesus' ministry that his brothers came to actually get him because they thought he was crazy. They're like, Jesus, you, man, you are off your rails. We need, to, we need to kind of bring you back. And Jesus was like, no, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. But James was not a believer at the beginning. In fact, I want you to imagine if you had a brother or sister that came to you and said, I am the Messiah. I'm the son of God, right? You'd give him a wedgie and you'd kick him out of your room. <laughs> so what you'd do, you'd be like, nah, no, I grew up with you. You're no, you're no Messiah. And that's kind of where James is at. And yet James goes on to be one of the most just powerful believers in Jesus. In fact, so much so that he actually gets killed proclaiming the name of Jesus. They actually throw him down off the temple and they actually kill him as he's proclaiming his brother was the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. So like something happened in James. But here's what James says about your trials. I've always loved this. He says it this way, James chapter one. He says, count it all joy. Say joy. Really important word here. He doesn't say happiness. I don't know about you, but when a trial comes, I don't go, I am so happy that I get to go through this trial. Thank you, God. I never say that. He says, but there's a difference between happiness, which is based on happenstance or circumstance, and joy. Joy is something that's deep down inside you that wells up from inside that you know that God is controlling, so you can have joy in all situations. He says, I want you to learn to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It produces strength. It produces stability. He says the test that you walk through actually has the power to strengthen you. And he says, and let that strength, that steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. He says, that's the goal. That's the, the goal is the goal is that you'd allow the test to change you into something better than you were. Now, let me set up the story for you because I want to take you to the actual test, all right? So let's, let's go here. Um, so stay with me for just a second. I want to take you to the night that Jesus was betrayed. All right, so Jesus is having Passover with his disciples. He's in the upper room. They finish the meal, and then Jesus says, let's go out to pray. He says, we're going to go out to the Garden of Gethsemane, the place that I always pray. In fact, the Bible says it was his custom. It was very traditional for him to do this. In fact, this is how we know how Judas found him. Judas knew where to go to find Jesus to betray him. So Judas is gone. The disciples have gone with Jesus to the garden. Jesus says, stay here and pray that you don't enter into temptation. And then Jesus went about a stone's throw away and there he knelt and he prayed to God. He said, God, if there's any way that the cup that I'm about to face, the cup of wrath from your disdain on sin, this crucifixion that I know is in my near immediate future, if there's any way that could pass me by, but God, not my will, your will be done. And he prayed earnestly. He went back to the disciples and found them still sleeping. And he said, wake up. Stay with me just an hour. Just pray that you don't enter into temptation. He went back and he prayed again. Well, as he's praying, Judas arrives. There he has with him temple guards. He walks up and he kisses Jesus on the cheek to signify that he's the one that they want and they arrest him. 
They take him to a sham trial and they go to the house of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest at the time. And the reason I say that his house is because the high priest had an office and a house that was one. It's in the northern side of the city. In fact, you can actually still go to Israel today. You can go to Jerusalem. You can actually stand in Caiaphas' house. It's unbelievable. It's my favorite place in all of Israel. I always tell tour groups when I take them there, it's like, this is the spot that absolutely, unequivocally my favorite. The reason why is because it's the one spot that I can prove to you biblically, scripturally, it's the one spot that I know you can stand in the exact spot that Jesus stood. Because there in Caiaphas' house, there's a hole in the ground. It's the only spot that has this. And there in that hole, about eight to 10 feet down, is a small little um, prison cell that they basically would put someone in to be questioned. The high priest would look down into the hole and he would question. The reason why he had to be separated from the prisoner is because they didn't know if the prisoner had blood on their hands. If the prisoner had blood on their hands, they were basically ceremonially unclean. And the high priest was clean, scripturally and ceremonially. And so what happened is he would question him. As long as there was no blood involved in the crime, they would then take them out of the cell. They would come up and they would stand before Caiaphas. And it says in the Bible, that's what happened. That Jesus was in this little cell being questioned by Caiaphas. And then they brought him up to Caiaphas. And there they put him on trial. Now the story goes this way, that Peter followed Jesus. Peter was kind of on the outskirts as Jesus was being arrested, and he gets, finds himself in this courtyard. And you can go there to this day. You can stand in the courtyard. There's a Roman road that's 2,000 years old that's right next to the courtyard at Caiaphas's house. And so this is the spot that Peter finds himself. And I just imagine, like, Peter's probably cloaked, very common in that day and time to, like, cover themselves up. It's late at night. It's kind of cold. He's probably warming himself by the fire. And he's trying to listen in as Jesus is having this trial. Now, the Bible says this about Peter's encounter in that courtyard. It says this. Now, Peter was sitting outside. He was there in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean. She's like, I, I, I think you were with Jesus. Like, he's kind of a big character. He's a big deal. I think, I think you were with him, weren't you? And she calls out the fact that he's from Galilee, even though he actually wasn't. He just did his ministry in Galilee. But it's, Peter denied it before them all. I love this. Like all of a sudden, Peter doesn't just say to the girl, hey, you, you got it wrong. You're wrong. He says in front of everybody, no, no, she's wrong. No, no, I don't, I don't know the guy. I never knew the man. She says that I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and said by the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. She gets it right. This one it almost feels like she knows him a little bit more because Jesus was from Na Nazareth, not from Galilee. And she says, I know that you were with him. Like, I know that you follow him. And I love this because all of a sudden it says this. Again, he denied it with an oath this time. He said, I swear, I do not know the man. And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. You see, at this point, you have to recognize that Peter was from Galilee. He was from a place called Capernaum. It was this little tiny city right on the, the edge of the lake. And there they had a different accent, they talked a little different. Kind of like if you meet someone from the South, you're like, you're from the South, right? You can pick it up pretty quick. And that's what they were doing. They're saying, hey, the way you talk tells us everything we need to know. You're from that area. You've got to be with Jesus. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself, and he began to swear, I do not know the man. And he immediately, the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out, and he wept bitterly. See, Peter came to the moment of his test and he failed the test. And I don't know if you can relate. If there's been a time in your life where you've been tested and you failed, you responded in a way that wasn't the way that God wanted you to respond. You didn't grow in the midst of the trial. Instead, the trial owned you. You didn't own the trial. 
And this is where he finds himself. And, and, and last week, I talked about this idea that there's, there's kind of this moment in our lives where we get to ask the question, like, who are we? And I don't think we ever find out who we are until we walk through a trial. I don't think we find out what we truly believe through when we, until we walk through a trial. That's where Peter was at. Peter was bold. Like, at the very beginning, he's like, Lord, I will never leave you. I will die for you. And yet, when a teenage girl comes up and says, hey, weren't you with Jesus? He buckled. He buckled. At that moment, he knew that he had failed Jesus, he had failed his Lord, he had failed his Savior. You see, I think there's a reality check for us. Last week, I talked about the three types of Christians. Like, you got to decide, man, are you casual? Is it convenient? Is there a commitment? Like, where do you land in this? And I think that's probably where Peter was at. He found himself asking the question, like, man, am I really as committed as I thought I was? Because now that I realize my faith isn't what I thought it was, then maybe I'm not who I thought I was. Maybe it's more about my identity and who I see myself as. And this is where he was. In fact, can I just give you something that I found to be true? When you face a trial, which you will, there's usually three responses. I want to give them to you. There's just three standard ways that you respond to a trial. Let me give you the first one. The first one is to fight with God, right? I don't know if you've ever been there. When things haven't gone my way, I have been here, where now I'm mad at God. Like, God, how could you allow this? God, how could you do this to me? How could you allow this in my finances? How could you allow this to happen to someone I love? How could you tear this away from me? How could you uh, allow my career to fall apart? How could you allow my finances to fall apart? How could you allow this relationship to fall apart? God, I'm mad at you. Now, what I thought was interesting about this one is, I, I don't know if you are the way I am. Um, I struggle with giving God praise for all the things that he does do in my life. I've always found it interesting. Like when things go good, we, we usually will just say, well, it worked out right? It was happenstance. Like, you know, man, things are good today and I'm good with good. I'm good that it's good today. Are you good with that it's good? Like, like you can easily get there and be like, this is great. Things worked out for me versus going, hey God, thank you for what you've provided for me. You know what also happens when we lose something that we love? We go right to God, where were you? Why didn't you provide? Instead of going to God, thank you that I had something to lose. Like we don't go, oh man, I lost all my finances. God, thank you that I had finances to lose. There's a whole bunch of people out there that don't. Thanks for that blessing. Man, I lost a relationship. I had a relationship. I know some people that would love to have a relationship. They don't have one, right? We think of all the things we lose versus the things that we had, and we'll put God on trial. Like, God, you're, you're bad, and so I'm done with you. I'm mad at you. The second one you see is that people will run from God. They just, they take flight, man. They flee. They're like, all right, God, if you're not going to do it the way I want you to do it, then I want you to know I'm not going to church anymore. That's right. I'm not going to go. No, that, you know, I'm not going to serve anymore. I'm not giving anymore. And God's like, yeah, I don't need what you give, but cool. Um, like, like we think like we're hurting God. Like I'll just stop doing these things. Or I meet the people who deconstruct. They're like, well, God, you didn't give me what I wanted. You didn't do it the way I wanted you to do it. So at this point, I'm just gonna give my faith and I'm gonna go ahead and deconstruct my faith and I'm gonna go ahead and decide that I don't believe in you anymore. And I'll just flee. I'll just give up and I'll bail. Or you can do the third thing. And the third thing is simply this, is that you can allow faith to drive you to God. You can allow it to be this moment that when you face a trial and the trial seems too big for you, that you recognize these truths, that God is for me, and if God is for me, who can be against me? That no weapon formed against me will prosper. That he said he will never leave me nor forsake me. That if God is gonna go before me as he always has, then he will be behind me, he will be beneath me, and he will be above me, and he's a good God, and so I can trust him in the middle of my trial. And all of a sudden, your faith rises up, and then you face the trial, and you go, I have everything I need to overcome this trial, because the greatest force in the world, the greatest force in this universe is with me and for me, and so if he's with me, then I have nothing to fear, and I will walk through this trial, and I'll believe in God as I do it. There's power in that. 
But you gotta decide how you are gonna respond. And this is where I think we need to recognize that Peter found himself in the flea spot. Like, let me go back to his story for a second. After he has this moment of denying Jesus three times, we lose track of Peter. Peter disappears. We don't know where he's at. He wasn't at the crucifixion. The Bible tells us that. We know who was there. We know that Mary was there. We know that John was there. Peter wasn't there. Peter didn't make it to the crucifixion. The next time we see Peter is when Mary Magdalene runs and says, Jesus is alive. And John and Peter run to the tomb and they go and look. And you notice that Peter like pokes his head in, but he doesn't believe right away. He's kind of like, well, I don't know. I don't know what happened to Jesus. I'm not sure where he is. I'm not sure what to believe. I'm not sure what to trust. And it's not until that evening that he's in the locked room that Jesus appears and Jesus stands amongst them. He goes, I'm alive. Here's the scars in my hands. And here's the, 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 the hole in my side. He says, believe. But he never, ever talks to Peter about what happened in the courtyard. And so the, here's how the story goes. A couple days go by from that. He introduces himself one more time to the disciples for Thomas's sake. And then Jesus disappears again. And this is what I find just amazing. The disciples decide to leave Jerusalem where they've seen Jesus. They go back to Galilee. And here's what it says that they do. Are you ready for this? I just think this is interesting. It says a lot. They go back to fishing. Like after three years of being with Jesus, being taught by Jesus, being guided by Jesus, being like led by Jesus, they go back to doing the thing that they've always done. They go back to what they know. They go back to fishing. Why? I just don't think they knew what to do at this point. And so Peter's fishing, and then Jesus shows up on the Sea of Galilee. All right, this is really cool. They're out fishing. They see Jesus, and Jesus is like, bring the boat in. They catch all these fish, and Jesus has already made a fire, and he's prepared a place for them to have breakfast. He's like, let's eat. Let's have breakfast. And so the guys come in. They, they clean the fish. They get it on there. They have breakfast together, and then Jesus grabs Peter and has this little one-on-one with him. And this is where I want to pick up our story because this is where it gets really good. I love this. Here's what it says. Maybe. Here's what it says. It says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, he said to him what? He said, Simon. He doesn't call him Peter. Like, like, hey, our last encounter, just so we're on the same page, was when you denied me three times. Okay, let me just put that out there. He goes, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than the rest of the disciples? And then Peter says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? I've always just loved this little part of the passage. Like like Peter gets offended. Peter's like, Jesus, I cannot believe that you would ask me a third time if I love you. How could you ask me that? Like I've already said twice. A third time seems extreme. Imagine Jesus on the other side of this conversation, like, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Three times. It seems like a lot. It's, it does. It's, it's weighty. It's a weighty question. The third time he says, do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter's feeling the, the kind of the intensity, and I think it's because he's weighing down and he's carrying the fact that he knows he did wrong. He knows that he denied Jesus three times. He says, do you love me? And then Peter said to him, Lord, you, you know everything. You know that I love you. And then Jesus said to him again, he said, feed my sheep. And then Jesus says something to him that's a little shocking. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Jesus had said to show what kind of death 
Peter was to glorify God, and after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Say, follow me. You see, this is the part of the story that I've always just, I've resonated with. Maybe you will. Is after Peter goes on to deny Jesus three times, fail Jesus three times, fail his Lord three times, Jesus comes along and says, do you love me? He says, yes. He says, I want you to take care of my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. I want you to to care for them. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to, to do the job. You see, he went from his failure of messing up, of screwing up, and then Jesus doesn't chastise him. Jesus gives him a calling. Jesus gives him a job. Jesus said, you've messed up. You've made a mistake. You've dropped the ball. You've failed, but I'm still a good God, and believe it or not, the trial that you have walked through, the trial that you have endured, The trial that has been tested and a faith that has been tested is one that can now be trusted. Peter, I've actually prepared you to be everything that you need to be in the trial that you've walked through and now you are prepared to be who I've called you to be. You don't have what it takes. You may have messed up big time and God has the power to pick you up, dust you off and give you a calling. I think so many people disqualify themselves so many times from ministry. Like, like God, you can't use me because, man, the things I've done. God, you can't use me because the mistakes that I've made. God, you can't use me because I failed here, I failed here, I failed there. And God comes along and says, no, 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 no. You are not the sum of your bad choices. You are who I say you are. And if I say there's a calling on your life, there's a calling on your life. Now stand up, my child, and go forth and do amazing things in my name. And Peter takes it and he runs. He runs. He runs after the things of God. And and can I just give this to you? I love this. Man, trials in your life have the potential to draw you closer to God. I'm gonna just say potential. The reason it's potential is because how you respond to it will determine if you grow close to him or you grow away from him. I think trials come along, and I hear this all the time as a pastor. Like, like, Ted, you don't understand. God allowed, God allowed, God allowed. I read through the Bible, and I see all sorts of things that God allows, and I go, I don't like it. I don't like it. When someone loses a child, I don't go, well, let me explain to you the goodness of God in that. No, I don't have an answer for that. Bad things happen, stuff goes wrong, and God allows it, but he says, listen, there's actually power in your pain. There's actually tribulations that come along, and there are trials, but there's an opportunity to triumph in those trials if you trust me, and it doesn't come down to the perception, right? Like, you're going to have these situations come along, and you can't control those, but you can control the perception, You can control how you see it, what you do in it, what you do with it. He says, that's up to you. How you frame it is up to you. And what you do through it is up to you. He says, will you allow it to change you? And I want to take you to how it changed Peter. Just go with me for a second here. As Jesus was challenging Simon, son of John, do you love me? He took him to the end after he said, yes, I love you. Yes, I love you. Yes, you love me. After three times, then Jesus said something that I think was challenging. Let me read it again for you. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself, and man, you'd walk wherever you wanted. You can go where you want. You can do what you want. You can do how you want. You can live your life. He goes, but I got news for you. If you do the thing that I'm gonna invite you to do, if you do the thing that I want you to do, He says, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And he told him this to let him know that if you follow me, you're gonna die for me. If you follow me, you're gonna die for me. It's not gonna go the way you want it to go. It's not gonna go the way that you wish it would go. You're not gonna die old and warm in your bed. You're gonna die in a way that will actually bring glory to God, not glory to you. And then he says these words. He says, I'm just gonna ask you, 
Will you follow me? Will you do the thing that you said you would do at the first time when you said, if you go to prison, I'll go to prison. If you die, I will die. And Jesus said, I wasn't asking for it then, but I'm asking for it now. And the question is, is do you have the faith this time to carry you through? Do you have the faith to walk this out? And James still said it the best, and I just wanna give it to you. Here's what he said. He said, count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let that steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here's what he says. He says, do not waste your trials. Do not waste your pain. Do not waste the situations that come along and they, they wreck you. He says, don't waste them. Instead, use them. Let them be the fuel that carries you forward. Let them be the thing that transforms you and makes you who, you want to, who God wants you to be. Here's the deal. Jesus did not come to save you from your trials. Jesus came to save you from your sins. He says, that's the good news. That's the joy that's found there. With every head bowed and every eye closed in this place, here's my challenge for you. Some of you came today, you are in the midst of a trial right now. I know you are. And I'm not belittling your trial. I'm not up here saying, get over it and use it and move forward. I'm not, man, there's pain and it's real. But what I am gonna say is my hope is that you won't fight with God, that you won't flee from God, but instead you'd have faith in your God and that he would carry you through. He'd give you the strength that only he has to give and that he'd be the one that supports you and leads you, protects you, provides for you. That's my prayer for you today. If you're in this room and you don't know Jesus Christ, you're online, you're joining us today and you don't know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, there's a God in heaven who loves you. He loves you. He sent his one and his only son to come and live and die for you on a cross for your sins, but God didn't leave him dead. He raised him up to new life. And the Bible says if you believe that, if you trust that, you'll be saved. It says if you believe in your heart that God raised his son Jesus from the dead and you confess with your lips that he is your Lord, you will be saved. So right now, if you want that, you just talk to God. Wherever you are, he's listening. You just close your eyes, you just pray. You just say, God, thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you for his life. The death that he died the life that you gave him. I place my faith and my trust in Jesus as my Lord, as my Savior. And in that moment, as you engage that faith, as you believe, as you confess, God saves you instantly because of his goodness, his grace, his mercy. He pours it out on you in that moment. God, I pray right now you'd send your Holy Spirit to lead, guide, empower. God, help them to follow you. God, help them to serve you, to seek you. God, I pray for every single person in this room that's in the midst of a trial right now, that God, that you would allow your spirit to bolster their faith, that God, they'd walk out of this place with maybe a new confidence, got a new, a new mentality, got a new identity, that they would not walk in the ways of their old nature and their old life and their old name, but God, they'd walk in the new name that you've given them, the new identity you give them, that they are children of the most high. God, help them to walk in that truth. God, we love you. We praise you. We pray all this in your precious name. And the church said... Amen. If you said yes to Jesus today for the very first time, can we just celebrate that, church? We are so excited for you. As you take that journey, we want to know about that. So help me out. If you just today said, yeah, man, I'm giving my life to Jesus. This is my moment. We want to walk alongside that journey with you. No one goes on it alone. And so if that's you, in the seat pocket in front of you, there's a card that says next. Before the service ends, grab that card, fill it out. Check the box, I prayed to receive Jesus. Take it by the information center. We got a gift for you. We wanna connect with you. If you're online or maybe you don't do the paper thing, you can actually text in next to 309-777-0677 and some of our team will actually reach out to you and connect with you. We are so excited for you as you take that journey. Um, before you go today, I just have something I need to share with the church. 
Uh, kind of a little bit of a family moment, if, if you will. And if you're brand new to the church, uh, welcome to our family moment. Um, but I have uh, served on staff here for almost 17 years this November. And um, over the next two months, I will actually be transitioning out of my role as the lead pastor of Ale Church. And even as I say that, I know instantly there's a bunch of you in the room like, wait, what? Um, what did you just say? And um, I want to kind of give some context to that real fast is uh, the moment I share that, I, I know that there's like this question of like, well, what happened? And, you know, did, did they, someone ask you to resign? No. Um, are you resigning because you're unhappy or there's something else that you want to do and you just need to get out of here? No. It was about four years ago uh, that I shared with our leadership team for the very first time after being here for 13 years that I'd felt that perhaps God had something else that he wanted me to do. I just didn't know what it was. I just had this kind of this feeling of release from our church, even though God was moving in amazing ways. In fact, everything was up and to the right. Church was growing. In fact, it's the best staff I've ever served with, best leadership team we've ever had. Our vision is intact. All the pieces in play are phenomenal. And yet something inside of me just said, there's something else that I'm supposed to do. And so I, I didn't go out looking for a church. I wasn't sending out resumes. I wasn't applying. I wasn't interviewing. I just was open-handed. And I said, hey, God, if there's something that you want me to do, I'm going to wait till you present that moment until you invite me into that story. And at that point, I'm just going to be patient, which is really easy to do because you guys made it really easy. It was a great church to be at. It still is a great church to be at. And what I can tell you is, is that um, about a year ago, a friend of mine who is a pastor and a mentor to me um, reached out and said, hey, would you by chance be interested in taking over for me? I'm going to be retiring after 33 years of being at my church. And just for context, he lives up close to Chicago. And so I looked at him and I said, absolutely not. I have no desire to go north. I said, if I get a choice, it's going to be south, baby. Like, that's where I'm headed. And it was uh, about six months ago that he called me one more time and said, hey, we're getting ready to start the process. I have no idea if God's moved your heart or changed your heart. But I'm curious if you'd be willing to go through the process and see what God might lead. And so at that time, I said, um, sure, I'm willing to do that. And so I let our leadership team know I was going to engage the conversation see where it go, but at any moment, it could be turned off. There's a ton of candidates. It's, it's a large church. It's a prominent church, um, and so it's kind of a big deal for my name to be even thrown in, and it whittled down from 30 people down to six people, down to two people, down to one person, and they asked if I would step into that role to replace my friend and my mentor and step into that role, and so Amy and I went off, and we spent some time in prayer, and during the process, I just felt a lot of peace, but I just wanted God to confirm that, and so it was during that time that we were away and together that I was able to discern that God has something else for me, a next step. And so with that being said, um, in the next couple months, I will transition out of this role. I will step into that role. And the exciting thing is that this is not a shock. Four years ago, I noticed to you, sorry, um, but to our leadership team, it wasn't a shock. So four years ago, we actually put together a process, brought in an outside company, a firm, that helped us put together a 27-page document of how we will do this transition from communication to what we're gonna do in the interim to how we're gonna do the process, and those things are all rolling. They're all behind the scenes. We've got a great leadership team. In fact, in a moment, Jeff Cowden's gonna come out, the chair of our leadership team. He's gonna pray and close our time out together, but um, today, after this service, um, they're actually gonna roll out a website that's gonna have a FAQ section that has a whole bunch of questions you're thinking right now. We've tried to pre-answer them. There's a system and process in place of how they're gonna be looking for my replacement. It's a nationwide search. We've already got a couple candidates that are coming out of the woodwork that are phenomenal, that already said, hey, if you're leaving, I would love to fill that role if it's open. I said, please put your name in. We'd love to hear from you. But what we're gonna do is step into a season of this in-between. And I know that change is hard. And I know that in-betweens can be hard. Um, and I can tell you that I've been navigating that in my own heart, in my own spirit. And I'm not gonna cry in this service, but um, it has been my honor. Dang it. Um, it has been my honor and my privilege to pastor here. It has been the greatest joy of my life. I have grown here. Um, I've become the man. 
This place has shaped me. You guys have shaped me. And so, I don't know how you feel about me as pastor, but I can tell you guys have been an awesome church, and I have loved being here. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, Jeff, if you want to come out. Um, so here's the deal. We've got this team that is going to be here. It's going to be supporting you in this time. I'm going to be around. I'm not leaving today. It's not my last week. I'm preaching for the coming weeks that are coming up. Not next weekend, but after that for like three. And I'll be around in the lobby and connecting with people. Um, but there's something you should know about this church. This is still means a lot to me. I'm only a couple hours away. Uh, my parents still go to this church. Like this place matters to me. And I care about it. And so I'm going to be at a distance cheering for you, celebrating as God moves here. But I'm believing that the next leader is going to come. It's going to take the baton and he's going to charge the next hill with you. And I'm going to be cheering the whole way as we see God do something amazing and mighty in this community and beyond. So thank you guys. So Jeff. Pastor Ted, on behalf of the Vale Church family, we just want to thank you for everything you've done for these last 17 years. Can we give it up one more time for this tremendous pastor? That is well-deserved, my friend. Um, uh, Vail Church, the Lord has just blessed this church under your leadership, Ted, and we are, will forever be grateful for that. Your church family loves you, we appreciate you, and we're going to miss you. And as we close this service, I'd like to have an opportunity to pray for you, pray for your family, and pray for our church as we all go through this season of transition. So Vail Church, if you please uh, bow your heads. Lord, thank you for Pastor Ted. Thank you for the impact that he's had on our church, on our community, on our families, and on us as individuals. He has truly made a difference in each of our lives, and we are so thankful for that. Lord, you have bestowed many gifts upon Ted, and he has been used tremendously to grow your kingdom here in Bloomington Normal. And Lord, we are so grateful to have been a part of this journey with him at Vail. Lord, I pray that you're with Ted and his family, Amy, Addison, Ariana, and Asher. We pray that you bless them in their transition to their new community. Lord, I thank you in advance for the impact that they're going to have on their new church and their new community. And Lord, I just pray you use them in amazing ways to continue to grow your kingdom. Now, for our church family, this is a bittersweet moment because we mourn the loss of our lead pastor. But we know and we realize because our pastor has taught us and he's modeled, God, that you are sovereign and that your timing is perfect, always. Even in moments when we may not understand. Lord, you've provided and you've blessed Ted with an opportunity. But Lord, you've also blessed Vale with an opportunity. An opportunity to continue to grow and impact, but in new ways. 
Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to trust you more during this season of transition. And Lord, we thank you for our strong church family, our committed staff, our prepared leadership. Lord, Ted helped build a strong foundation here at Vail. And because of that, I believe that this next season for Vail can be our greatest. Lord, we just thank you for Ted and his family. We ask you to bless them. We thank you for the blessings that you've bestowed upon Vail Church. And Lord, we are just excited of what you're going to provide us as we move forward into this next season. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. 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 Well, now that you guys have made this a sad affair, um, hey, we love you. God bless you. Thank you for being here this week. We hope to see you next week. You are dismissed. I'll see you guys out in the lobby. Bless you. We hope this message challenged you, encouraged you, and most of all, brought you closer to a loving God who wants nothing but the best for you. If you have any questions about taking next steps in your faith journey, simply text NEXT to 309-777-0677. Everyone has a next step, and here at Vail, we would love to walk alongside you. If this message was impactful to you, we encourage you to share it. To stay connected to everything Vail Church, feel free to subscribe. Visit our website at vail.church and follow our socials on Instagram and Facebook. Lastly, for all of those who call Vail Church home, let's remember, worship faithfully, connect intentionally, give generously, and serve sacrificially. We'll see you next week.